Hello, I'm Douglas Murray, and welcome to Uncancelled History. Today, I'm talking with the distinguished historian Felipe Fernandez Amesto, and we're going to be talking about the age of the explorers. Felipe Fernandez Amesto is the William P. Reynolds Chair of Mission in Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame, where he is professor in the departments of history and classics and the program in the history and philosophy of science. His books include his 1996 biography of Christopher Columbus, his book 1492, The Year the World Began, and most recently, Straits, Beyond the Myth of Magellan. Today, on Uncancelled History, we're going to be talking about the age of the explorers. First of all, Felipe, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, the age of the explorers, uh, it's uh, uh, something, it's a world which today is perhaps incomprehensible to a lot of people, particularly to a lot of young Americans. Um, but we get little glimpses into the debate, the world, um, and we get them in strange eruptions of uh, outrage, usually surrounding Columbus in the United States. Uh, in the last couple of years, particularly since uh, the summer of 2020, dozens of statues of Christopher Columbus have been torn down in the United States. There's an endless rolling uh, debate about Columbus Day and whether it should even be uh, called that, whether it should be celebrated. And this isn't new. Uh, uh, the Sopranos, 20 years ago, had a, uh, a, an episode in which Columbus and the tearing down of a Columbus statue was even then uh, an issue. Really? It's, yes. Or Sopranos, 20 even, years ago. Even The Sopranos, 20 years ago. Oh, I wish I'd known that before we started this interview. I'd have tried to beat you to citing that example. It's great. <laughs> um, so, so tell us, first of all, to begin with, um, why, uh, why is this such a, a lively issue? And um, uh, what, what is there about Columbus in particular that causes this mass sort of hysteria? Well, I guess you began by putting your finger on you know, what really matters here, which was the incomprehensibility today of sympathising with what it was be, it, what it was to be like, somebody like Columbus, one of those heroes of the age of exploration, because Columbus really didn't know where he was going. I mean, nobody in those days who was engaged in these long-range voyages of exploration, which were a completely new experience in the history of humankind. Columbus is the first person we know about to make a long voyage of exploration with the wind behind him. That's a really extraordinary fact because nowadays, whatever yachtsman wants to have the wind behind him. Mm. But in those days... You didn't want that. You wanted to sail into the wind because you needed to come back. There's no point in discovering anything unless you go back to tell people about it. So, ironically, they always sailed into the wind until Columbus came along and had this extraordinarily daring, you know, audacious, adventurous idea of sailing with the wind 
behind him. So it's a really risky enterprise. Even if you're going out exploring outer space nowadays, you actually know where you're going. You've got your monitors telling you all the time what's ahead. Nothing like that existed in those days. So we're talking about a level of adventure which really isn't reproducible today. Mm -hmm. And I, I sometimes think that's really at the root of why people find it so hard to sympathise with these dead white male explorers. It's almost the worst thing in the world nowadays mm -hmm. to be a dead white mm -hmm. male explorer. And yet what they did was extraordinarily commendable in terms of the risk that they were willing to take, the adventure that they were willing to embrace, for the innovation that they were willing to back with their lives because, mm. because most of them died doing it. Columbus is rather exceptional in that he survived to die in his bed at, at home. But I guess, you know, the, the really um, uh, killing element that has made exploration the object of obloquy today uh, is that it carried with it a, a terrible legacy of imperialism, mm. of exploitation, of violence, which wasn't necessarily in the minds of the explorers themselves, certainly wasn't in Columbus's mind. He was like everybody else, he was a mixture of virtues uh, and vices, but by the standards of ex explorers of his day, of regular guys of his mm. day, he was actually, relatively speaking, a quite good guy. Um, but the legacy has poisoned the renown. Mm. Uh, what was the 15th century world like that uh, explorers like Columbus came from? He came from a very humble background, like most explorers, basically in those days. If you wanted to get on, and by God, Columbus wanted to get on, he was really, you know, a, a man... Uh, absolutely driven by his ambition to succeed and to arrive socially. It wasn't so much important to him as to get to a particular geographical de destination on his explorations. He wanted to arrive socially. And in order to understand that, you've got to understand that he starts from a very humble background. He's a weaver's son. And in those days, you wanted to get on. If <laughs> you're lonely born and you want to get on, you basically got three courses, the church, and I, Columbus, I think, actually considered the church at one point. War, that's mm. a great way of getting on. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, or exploration. Mm. And Columbus, together with a lot of other, you know, very humble people who are struggling to make it in the acceptance world, chooses the explorer's vocation. And how he does that is he models his life on fictional trajectories. He's, he's a great reader of what we would now consider sort of romantic fiction. The, the station bookstall or airport bookstall mm. pulp fiction of his day was stories of, of chivalry, mm. romantic stories of chivalry, the stuff satirised a bit later by Cervantes in Don Quixote. Stories of typically of a hero who's down on his luck, He's often a foundling. Mm. Um, he's, he, he really deserves on merit a great place in the world, but the, the world is against him. Uh, and he makes it by going out on chivalric adventures, deeds of daring do. And very often, these take place at sea. Mm. In fact, that's one of the commonest features of the, the, the real bestsellers of Columbus's 
youth. So he tries to do that. He tries to escape by making a great voyage of exploration by sea. And the usual fade out of these stories is the guy conquers an island, defeats giants and monsters, <laughs> and, and, so, and the usual fade out is he marries a princess. And that's the tragic trail that Columbus was following. Incidentally, also the tragic trail that his father-in-law had followed very successfully, and he had become lord of an island in Portuguese service. So Columbus was also had his father-in-law's example to follow, but I think he'd already made up his mind that that was what he was going to do, and he based it on his reading of pulp fiction. Unless you know that, you can't understand him, you can't understand what animated him. Mm. It wasn't all stuff that you find in the conventional books. It wasn't religion, it wasn't scientific um, uh, uh, attitude to the, the world, it wasn't a desire to increase knowledge, although he did have all those things and he expressed all those things. The real driving force was the social ambition. What did Europeans uh, of the time know of the rest of the world? But when you say no, <laughs> they didn't know, I mean, most of them didn't know anything about it because it, it wasn't within their um, experience. And most of the knowledge that they had was kind of vicarious knowledge that had come through ancient classical Greek and Roman writings, through Arabic literature, which percolated into Europe in the, uh, in the Middle Ages. But very few Europeans have been anywhere else. And you know, really, except for pilgrims going to Jerusalem, mm. um, most of the rest of the world was pretty much closed and very hostile. Hostile mm. either because of the adverse elements. It's quite difficult, you know, to get out into the Atlantic because of the adverse winds. It's quite difficult to get overland into Asia or Africa because of the hostile cultures and kingdoms that, yeah. that didn't want Christians in their territory. And pretty much, you know, there were two ways of getting to the Indian Ocean up to Columbus's time. One was by going to Egypt, sailing up the Nile, and taking a camel caravan across the Nubian Desert to a port on the Red Sea where you would take a ship, and that would take you into the Indian Ocean. And there were a few people who did that, merchants, missionaries, who sent back reports, a little bit of information was percolating through um, that way. Or the other way was to cross the Ottoman Empire, but very, very few people were allowed to do that because the Ottomans were very hostile to Christendom and they regarded mm. Christendom as their great enemy. But what did Europeans think, to the extent they did, was out there beyond the ocean? Monsters. Um, you know, if you look at the maps of the time, the edges of the world are full of monsters. That's Literal monsters. Literally, yes. You know, sort of guys with heads beneath their shoulders, to quote what Othello says uh, in Shakespeare's play. Dog-headed men, the cynocephali, the skyopods, um, guys with enormous ears. Um, um, creatures, human-like creatures who um, took nourishment by, by inhaling. Um, Amazons, you know. So all these strange deformations of normality populated the edges of the world. And you can see that in the maps of the time. They're all depicted there. And people thought about that and, and, and kind of believed it because it was in the classical Greek and Roman sources that they say respected. You rightly used the word Renaissance earlier in the interview to describe this period. Mm. It was a period when people were looking back to ancient Greece and Rome for all their values, all their norms, and a great deal of their, 
their knowledge. And because these, these monsters were described in, in ancient legends, people thought that they, you know, they would really find them out there. That's one of the things you've got to understand. When you try to comprehend what happened when these different cultures met, when Columbus goes out to the New mm. World and finds people whom no one had ever suspected, no one in Europe had ever suspected, existed, he's really got to ask himself, are these guys really fully human? Are they mm. the ones are very interestingly in one of his reports, he says, these people are just like us and are not monsters, at which he says, I was most surprised. <laughs> and I, you know, I just wish people would give Columbus the credit for having overcome those prejudices, those expectations mm. that you're going to find monsters, because we're all the victims of prejudices which come from our reading. Basically, you, know, you are what you read, mm. and you, you map what you read onto your mind, and it influences, it prejudices your perception mm. of what you then actually see out there, very few of us, when we look at the world, see what is really there. Mm. We see what we're already prejudiced to expect. I wish they would give Columbus the credit, if for nothing else, at least for overcoming those prejudices and for looking at people on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean and seeing them as people like us, mm. literally. So how, how does it come about? Um, Columbus sails off and what happens? A terrible journey <laughs> um, in, in which he, he really doesn't choose the best route out, but, but and, and the, the, the journey, because the, the wind's behind them, and nobody has undertake a long journey with the wind behind them before the danger that they're never going to get home. With Just rations for how long, long, by the way? I'm so sorry? On the ship, the rations would have been for how, expected to last for how long? Oh, they had, they had adequate um, rations because they were expecting a, a voyage of much the length that, actually, that, they, that they actually experienced. I mean, Columbus thought he, he, it would take him about a month to get to China. You know that he was expecting, or at least, I, I don't know what he was expecting, that's not really very clear, but he was commissioned by the King and Queen of Spain to go to China. Everybody wanted to go there because that was the richest economy in the world at the time. The wetbacks of the late Middle Ages and early modern period were not people crossing the Rio Grande. There were people crossing the ocean to get to China, India, the Indian Ocean, the rich economies of the world where all the great economic opportunities lay. So that's where he thought he was going. He thought it would take him a month or so. Um, <laughs> incredible um, underestimate, which shows how little people in Europe knew about the rest of the, the world. No one had sent home an authentic report about China since Marco Polo. So, so that, you know, that says something back in the 13th century. So they really didn't know what was going on in China. Indeed, Columbus had with him letters from the King and Queen of Spain to the ruler of China, which were addressed to the great Khan, a title the ruler of China hadn't had since 1368, and this is 1492. So that's how out of date they were in their information about China. But he was expecting it to take him a month, so he had adequate rations on board, although not by our standards, because the rations they had were basically salt 
fish and meat, which went putrid very quickly. And how and many men water. were with how many men were with him on? Oh well, uh, the the biggest of his ships had a capacity for about fifty men. But, you know, right. He had three ships, say thirty to fifty men on each ship. And uh, how come he doesn't get to China? Well, because America's in the way. I mean, that's a very crude way of putting it. But yes, you know, the New World was a sort of obstacle course on the way to, um, on the way to the East, and he didn't get there because he grossly underestimated the size of the world. It was a very interesting debate at the time because people have this weird idea, which I think is just a nineteenth-century joke that people have mistakenly taken seriously, um, that that Columbus proved the world was round. Yeah, of course not. Everybody knew the world was round. In fact, I think there were probably more people who believed in a flat Earth today than there yeah. were in the 15th century. We don't have any evidence of anybody who thought the world was flat at that mm. time. Everybody thought it was round. In fact, they overestimated its roundness because they thought it was a perfect sphere. Because why would God create anything you know, that wasn't perfect? So they, they actually exaggerated mm. the roundness. Um, of the world, and Columbus at one point began to think maybe it had a kind of hump in it, that it was shaped like a pear. <laughs> so he ended up not believing the world was, um, was round. So all that is rather um, uh, an, an irony, but his big mistake was to think that it's much smaller than it really is. And although people had you know, sort of worked out using theoretical mathematics and uh, uh, that it, 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 the world must be quite big, and I, I think most geographers at the time estimated roughly the right size. One of Columbus's you know, original features was that he argued against the orthodoxy of his day and postulated a very small world. Mm. And if it had been as small as he thought, you could have sailed from Europe to China in about a month, but alas, um, his estimate was you know, about 20 25%. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, he stumbles on the new world, of course. Of course, yes. And what does he think? He was very conflicted because at one, I think at one level, he realised that this wasn't the Orient, that there wasn't anything Chinese about any of this stuff. On the other hand, he was committed by the terms of his contract with the King and Queen of Spain to find a route to China. And all that social ambition mm. depended on his delivering for his patrons. Mm. The, the, the deal was, if he found the way to China, they'd make him a lord and they'd, they'd give him lots of rewards and, and say he would be elevated from the, the, his humble birth status of which he was humbly born into the, the world to which he aspired. Uh, but he could only do that if he delivered on his contract. See, he goes most extraordinary lengths to try and find you know, evidence that he's... They haven't got to China, but he tries to find evidence that he must have got near it. Mm. And that's part of the reason why he was also very conflicted about the people he met. Mm. Again, you've got to think about this. You want to understand, poor old Columbus, you've got to try and think yourself back into the, the state his mind was in when he got to the New World. A pretty febrile state because the danger of never getting home had accumulated right. throughout the voyage. He hadn't yet found a, a wind that would take him home. Um, uh, he was at odds with his second in command who, who had actually recruited all the guys who were on the 
the ships there, there was a big kind of, I know, credibility gap between Columbus and, and his crew. Um, uh, he had tried to blind them with science. He'd, he played around on the voyage with all these the latest navigational instruments, which he didn't actually know how to use. <laughs> he wasn't a man of any uh, really great education. He was an autodidact. He'd kind of taught himself. He had no idea really how to, how to work all these navigational instruments. So he tried to blind people with science. But I don't think that was likely to work very well with the seasoned mm. you know, navigators and, and sailors who who formed his crew. So he's in a pretty bad state mentally when he gets there. And he's also got, like everybody else, all these prejudices about how the world at the rim is going to be peopled with monsters. So he's on the lookout either for, you know, Chinese guys mm. or monsters, and, and because he doesn't really find any, and he doesn't, he's, you can see him, if you really read the texts, which, alas, very few people do, but if you really read them with the attention that they deserve, you can see Columbus struggling with conflicted images of the people whom he's mm. meeting. At times, he thinks, well, maybe, maybe they're not fully human, maybe they are monsters. At times, he thinks, well, are they just kind of savages? Mm. At times, he thinks, are they like St. Francis? He was a great devotee of St. Francis, and he wonders whether their nakedness, which is the, the thing about them which most impressed him and really rather shocked him when he first saw them, was their nakedness really like that of St. Francis when he stripped off in the public square mm. of Assisi as a sign of his dependence on God? Or was it like the innocence of Eden? Yeah. Was it a sort of yes. you know, pre-lapsarian? He type says innocence? this somewhere, doesn't he? One of the that the, 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 is he this like Adam and Eve? Yeah, have he, we found he, Eden? He mentions directly or indirectly all of these possibilities, including the last, which is you know that he's in the classical golden age, an age in the past which had been postulated by poets in Greek and Roman antiquity, an age in which people were naked, again, because they were innocent. So all of these ideas are struggling in his mind, and whether he ever fully resolves them, I don't know, but he definitely comes to the conclusion that these, you know, that these are genuinely human people, whom he is, mm. okay, human creatures, uh, and that they are, as, as he puts it, like us. And give us an idea of what pre-1492 indigenous society actually was like. Well, I mean, it was like everywhere else. <laughs> um, it, it was pretty grim if you weren't at the top. <laughs> mm. And um, it, was a, it was a stratified society with its own nobility. I mean, obviously, we're talking about lots of different societies. Mm. Uh, Columbus, even Columbus, whose navigations, explorations in the New World are fairly limited to the Caribbean and parts of the Par Par Caribbean era, encounters a lot of different cultures. But they're all hierarchical, they're all stratified. They all have their, their top guys and their bottom guys. They all have slavery already or some institution very similar to it. And they're all very conflicted. You know, one of the things that Columbus <laughs> is very puzzled about is that on the one hand, the, most of the people he, he meets seem very welcoming, very friendly, and very, very he, he's always going on about their innocence. Um, their docility. On the other hand, he notices that many of them have wounds on their bodies, which of course is a sign that they were already in a situation of conflict with, with each other. 
Uh, and on the island of Hispaniola, there are you know, at least two rival cultures and lots of rival tribes and peoples. Uh, and they're also you know, at war with people from neighboring islands who, who raid them and attack them. So, um, so there's a lot of violence and a lot of inequality in that society already. And by, by saying that, of course, I'm not justifying their colonization or imperialism or anything like that, because it, it, I think if people want to be conflictive, and, uh, if, you know, I'm very content for them to have the culture that they, uh, that they want, but we mustn't kid ourselves into a sort of mythical view that everything in the garden was lovely until the Columbus serpent came along and spoiled it. And that has become a view, hasn't it, in recent decades? I mean, there are uh, various books in the 90s and others that do present uh, Columbus and the explorers arriving into a continent that is basically Eden and, then, and proving to be the serpent in the garden. They, it, the, the Europeans come in and they bring all these vices into... It's as much as a myth as the myth of the monsters. These guys weren't monsters and they weren't perfect. They were people like other people and their society, like other societies, was a mixture of good and bad. And so what happens then? Columbus, of course, does two remarkable things. He manages to get there and he manages to get back. What happens when he gets back? Getting back was even harder because he had to find the right wind. Um, he was very short of provisions. He endured a terrible storm, which he thought was going to be the end of him. I mean, he literally, you know, sort of records his last thoughts, thinking that he's he's going to die. Um, when they finally get, they they finally make land in the Azores, which belongs to a hostile kingdom, the kingdom of of Portugal. So they're quite lucky, you know, not just to be thrown in jail. That's what happened to a lot of subsequent Spanish expeditions that fell into Portuguese hands. Uh, so he eventually gets home, and he's in a kind of race to get home. It's a race with his second in command, because as I mentioned earlier, these two guys never really got on. <laughs> <laughs> that typical story. That, I mean, you know, when does anybody really get on with his or her second in command? <laughs> <laughs> and he knew that if the other guy got home first, he'd tell a story which would be to Columbus's discredit. So he really was in a race to get home. And he made, he just won the race. And, mm. and, and, and when his second in command did get home, providentially for Columbus, he dies. I mean, he, he's, he's at the end of his tether when he gets back. And the first thing he does when he gets home is to die. So Columbus is left to be able to tell his own story right. to his own advantage. And, and, uh, what does he tell people about what's just happened? Well, it, it's harder to say that <laughs> than you might think, because the, the most important single source, which is his first report of his discoveries, uh, was very heavily edited at the Spanish court for publication because the king and queen of Spain wanted to get out there the fact that one of their servants had made this new discovery. So they wanted to preempt anybody else, you know, grabbing the, the spoils. Uh, and the, the report was very heavily edited, and it's quite hard to be sure what in it was actually authentically what Columbus said about himself and what wasn't. But he also left um, another sort of concoction, a, a document which has often been mistaken for his sort of shipboard log. It's often called his, 
his diary. Now that, but that was also very heavily edited after his death by, by the guy whom I suppose we now call his literary executor, Bertolomeo of Casas, very famous in the history of imperialism, for being a real friend to indigenous peoples and an absolute excoriator of any you know, sort of uh, um, white male who went over to exploit them. So, uh, so he, Bertolomeo de las Casas, really important voice um, for the the rights uh, and freedoms of indigenous peoples in the mm. Spanish market. Uh, and he heavily edits what survives of Columbus's writings. So it's not absolutely, mm. you've got to be absolutely sure how Columbus expressed what, um, what he found. But he had three main um, objectives, I think, to, in, in, in communicating with his public and with his patrons. Um, the first was to say that he had got somewhere near China, because he had to say that, otherwise you wouldn't have got into Otherwise you would have trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, secondly, to say that um, uh, although he hadn't found anything profitable to exploit in these um, islands, at least he'd found real people with real immortal souls who could be redeemed by Christianity, because that at least was something which the king and queen of Spain were very committed to, and if they couldn't get any profits from his discoveries, at least they would be gratified by the opportunity for, um, for evangelization. So I think those are the two most, most um, important things. And the third was to say that even though he hadn't found anything exploitable. He was sure he would if he was given another chance. <laughs> and he would say he was bidding, you know, mm. for more money, more investment, more patronage to go back and to mm. try and do better the second time round. And um, perhaps, unfortunately, the monarchs bought that and they did send him back with a bigger fleet and with a thousand people to set up a colony. And of course, he, he wasn't the only person racing to the new world at this stage, was he? Well, he was uh, head of the game. He yeah, I mean, game. He, 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 his success, which was, of course, a propaganda success. He hadn't really achieved any of the things he was supposed to achieve. But, but his, the, the fact that he found something uh, and that uh, he was able at least to argue that it could be profitable in the future did lead to a sort of stampede in which people followed him. The king and queen of Spain banned other people from following up on Columbus's achievement, that was part of their deal with him until 1499. But as soon as the the deadline kicked in, you know, lots of other people followed him. And meanwhile, of course, the um, the King of of England had tried to get in on the the act, thinking that if there was something out there, it must be quite must be nearer to England than it was to Spain, because the the curve of the Earth, obviously, right. you know, the further north you you travel the less distance you have if you're going to try and cross the ocean. So the English tried to get in on the act in 1496, and then by 1499, the Portuguese are also investing in, 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 in these westward voyages, although, strictly speaking, the papers said they should leave them to Spain. So there was a lot of competition, but to begin with, Columbus was out there on his own, definitely ahead of the pack. And what was it like once the sort of scramble began after 1499? Well, I'm not sure that made a great deal of difference because the people were bidding to make contact and find commercial opportunities in different parts of the of the ocean, um, and 
although the Portuguese didn't keep their side of the bargain entirely, the terrain between Spain and Portugal had really been worked out by treaty. So very crudely, Brazil was going to be Portuguese and everything else was going to be Spanish. And that was, mm. kind of, put it very crudely, that was the deal that they, um, that they made. So the competition, it was already, you know, sort of, it was confined to certain areas. And I don't think it made a great deal of, of difference to the experience of the indigenous people or of the Spanish colonists. Did, did it matter who landed first? I mean, was there a, a difference between the Spanish or the English or the... Well, people say this, and of course, because I'm Spanish, but um, I'm kind of half English and I now live in the United States, I got no, <laughs> I got no patriotic axe to grind. You know, I'm, I'm very neutral about this, and I, I don't honestly think that it's, that the myth about this is true. The myth, basically, is there's an English myth or an Anglo-Saxon myth or, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant myth that the English, the English, the English are best, in the words of Flanders and, and Swan, and everybody else is morally inferior. Um, and there's a Spanish myth that the, the, the English are terribly evil and cruel and the Spanish were more or less superior. Neither of these is true. You know, my own Spanish ancestors and my own English ancestors were equally bad mm. <laughs> and equally good. And the difference was that the Spanish were operating in a different environment. Because they were first in the game, they got the best part of the winnings. So the areas of the New World that became parts of the Spanish monarchy, were relatively rich, they were relatively well populated, they had existing productive economies, um, they were very habitable for Europeans and Africans. Most of the rest of the New World was a, a pretty crummy environment from the, mm. for the purposes of the time. With indigenous peoples who um, who didn't have the kinds of economies that would sustain life for European colonists. So the Spanish colonists were able to integrate into existing indigenous societies. English colonists weren't. And that's why in the Spanish world, you still have these huge indigenous populations. Um, they were left intact. Their cultures were left pretty much intact, except for the religion. That was the only thing. Spaniards wanted them to change their languages or intact their customs, their dress, all of the features of music to a great extent, all the features of the indigenous peoples and cultures in the Spanish part of the New World were left in place by the Spaniards. Not because the Spaniards were nice guys, particularly, but because they, they, it suited them economically to preserve what was already there. In the case of the English, of course, they exterminated or expelled the native populations mm. from their colonies. But that's not because they were worse people than the Spaniards. It's because the, having the native peoples around didn't suit the English. That wasn't the kind of economy they wanted. So they got rid of them. One of the things, of course, that, that comes up often with this is, is the disease that was brought in by... Uh, Europeans uh, in the, the wake of this. Yes, that's morally neutral, yeah. you know, unless uh, COVID really came from a laboratory and <laughs> you can't really blame the Chinese for it. Um, and obviously um, the 
Spaniards didn't manufacture the diseases that they took with them. They didn't they know them. anything about they, the diseases. They, they of they? course, had no idea. They didn't know about the you know, relative immunization, natural immunization of populations in different places. And indeed, for the Spanish monarchy, those diseases were a terrible I mean, they were a terrible disaster for the people who died. <laughs> <laughs> but they were also a terrible disaster for the, for the monarchy, partly because the Spanish monarchs did have a strong sense of Christian responsibility for their subjects. They believed that they were the servants of their people. They believed mm. that the indigenous people of the New World who joined the Spanish monarchy were their lawful, rightful subjects confided to them by God. So they were very worried to find these people dying on them. And it, of course, also was a disaster for the Spanish colonists who needed that labor, mm. you know, the worst thing the Indians, as they called them, the Indios, could do was to die on them. In fact, you can read, you know, lots of documents in which the Spanish colonists uh, are really furious with the people for dying. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, that was the most unhelpful um, course uh, of action um, available to them. Uh, and you also find tremendous investment by the Spanish crown in the health of indigenous people. People don't realize this, but the Spaniards built literally thousands of hospitals in their colonies in the course of the first three centuries of occupation. And those hospitals existed overwhelmingly for the indigenous people and also for black people um, if you were rich, if you were a rich white person, you didn't go to hospital. <laughs> you had the doctor come to you. Mm. But those hospitals existed essentially for the poor. And that was a tremendous uh, investment. No other monarchy of the time, no other state of the time, made anything like that investment in the health of its subjects. You don't find a sort mm. of you know, public health program. I suppose the last thing to say about disease is that it, it, this was the normality of the day. Mm. This was the age of plague and cold. Really, around the world, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, one of the amazing things about all these voyages of exploration and stuff is that they happened in a time when the world was gripped by plague and cold. You know, mm. This was a relatively cold period in the history of the the world, when people were enduring really terrible conditions, especially in winter, and when plague was absolutely rife. I mean, it was the normal uh, um, mm. annual occurrence in European mm. cities. And in, in a strange way, you could say that the, the, what the Spaniards did when they went to the New World was they exported the age of plague to the mm. Americas with devastating effects. And although the diseases that afflicted the, the indigenous people were different from those that afflicted people in Europe, because people in Europe become immunized to small, small parts, which was the biggest single color in the Americas. Uh, in spite of that, you find a sort of convergence in which plague becomes normal on both sides mm. of the Atlantic. And there's a terrible fact about plague, which people don't understand, which is that it's terrible for you if you die. But an even more terrible fact is it's great for the guys who survive, because it means there are more resources to divvy up amongst fewer people. Mm. And one of the shocking truths 
about the colonial period in the history of the Americas in the Spanish part of the Americas, in fact, that people don't appreciate because they don't really know it, they haven't taken it on board, is that actually an awful lot of indigenous people were enriched by the effects of the demographic disaster because they emerged from it with more land, more economic opportunities. Mm. Of course, Columbus is perhaps the most famous uh, household name today from the age of the explorers. You've recently written a, a book about another of the most famous explorers of the age. Uh, tell us a bit about, about that and, 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 and why your subject there is slightly under the radar of the current era. Well, thank you very much for mentioning my latest book, um, Douglas. That is a very great act <laughs> of kindness. Um, it's about Magellan the man who's credited with planning the first circumnavigation of the world. And that, uh, that voyage started in 1519 and ended in 1522. And he's usually hailed as one of, you know, the sort of great scientific navigators in the history of the world who contributed enormously to the emergence of modern science. Nothing could be further from the truth. And morally, he was a much worse guy than Columbus. I mean, he really does do stuff that Columbus never did. What like, sort of thing? Like burning indigenous villages, massacring people, um, starting uh, conflicts... Um, uh, he's a, a, an explorer who really does set out to found a colony and, and to be an imperial exploiter of other people's resources. To become he, rich. He also had, well, um, Columbus wanted to become rich and he wanted to become rich by way of trade. Mm. Magellan wanted to become rich by way of seizing other people's goods. <laughs> so right. Sort of slightly less uh, morally commendable course of, of action. He also had personal slaves. We've no evidence that Columbus ever had any personal slaves, although he, he did enslave people within what he thought were the terms that were permitted under the laws of his, his time. So, um, so McGinn's much worse character morally. He's also a traitor, a murderer, an arsonist, <laughs> a committer of judicial um, murder. So, the, you know, the tally of his crimes is pretty uh, condemnatory. Uh, he was also a total failure. <laughs> mm. um, Columbus didn't succeed in any of his own objectives, but you know, at least uh, um, he, he did make this first voyage with the wind at his back. He achieved a great breakthrough in uh, the history of navigation, and he did discover, I mean, he literally was the discoverer, not of America, obviously, but of viable routes back and forth across the Atlantic. So he really did forge new links between formerly sundered cultures which transformed for good and ill the history of the world. And Magellan didn't do anything like that. I mean, he, he failed not only in all his um, uh, uh, objectives, but also in contributing nothing, really, to global uh, history. The, the idea that, he, that it, because of course he, he actually never intended a circumnavigation of the world. That absolutely hadn't occurred to him. It couldn't possibly have occurred to him. His idea was to get in and out as quickly as possible. Um, and, and indeed the, the, uh, the, the circumnavigation implicitly was, was ruled out by the instructions that he got from the, the King of Spain. So the fact the voyage ended in a circumnavigation was an accident that Magellan had never intended. 
uh, on the way, he loses 90% of his crew. If you take out mm. the guys who are marooned or captured by the enemy or who desert, <laughs> of the surviving element, once you've taken those out, 90% die, including Magellan himself. And that's a pretty terrible death rate, even by the standard yeah. of, of voyages um, of the time. And when, he, when his, his men get back, it doesn't make any difference to people's image of the world because they still go on believing in this and hoping that the world is much smaller than it was. They still go on pursuing the chimera that Columbus had, had created of a, 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 a navigably, graspably small world. And if you look at the maps you know, that people make after Magellan's voyage, they still show the world shrunk and sort of relatively narrow Pacific, even though on Magellan's voyage it had taken him 90 days to cross the Pacific and, and they'd run out of food. So that they were, they were eating the, or chewing on the leather that they'd stripped from the linings of the mast. And, and rats were selling for 12 ducats apiece, on the, which is a fantastic sum. And they'd run out of, of water. They were drinking this putrid um, water. And of course, many of them were dying. So um, in spite of the fact that their experiences showed that the Pacific was this huge ocean, the message didn't get across to the European scientific community. So really, the effects of Magellan's voyage were pretty much negative. I mean, a few voyages were sent in his wake in the hope that somebody could do better right. <laughs> following the same route, but in fact nobody could, no commercial uh, advantages ever um, accrued to his successors. So it was pretty much total, total disaster, a romantic disaster. I mean, a great tragedy, which in the book I, you know, rather go to town. Yes, <laughs> no. you say, you, know, you love that. You know, to communicate yes. all these horrors um, to, the, uh, to, the, to the reader. But I think, you know, it makes rattling good history yes. in that sense, but, um, you know, not, didn't make a great deal of difference to the world. Uh, how is it that all of these reputations, these very different people with very different attitudes, um, have sort of got wrapped up together. Uh, I mean, Magellan, for instance, I, mean, I, I suspect that, I mean, of those who know him today, relatively few will know what the kind of villain he was, but uh, he gets wrapped up with Columbus. Everything in the Age of Explorers is sort of has, yes. has got merged somehow. Yes, the paradox is it's got nothing to do with the fact. Mm. Magellan, it's very hard to say that about Magellan. And yet, you know, Columbus, the guys are tearing down his statues, they're besmirching his reputation, they're mm. smattering him with obloquy, they're treating him as if he were uh, some kind of proto-fascist. Mm. And yet Magellan, who really was a bad guy, has escaped all that. You know, his statues are intact. Yes. Nobody is saying, let's tear down his statues. Uh, nobody is saying, let's, mm. uh, you know, revise his reputation. It's kind of like, it's me. Um, no one is saying, why don't we write the injustices you know, right. uh, um, that are accrued from, um, from Magellan's voyage. In fact, quite the contrary. 
Yeah, there are all these scientific prizes and university programs and mm-hmm. and whole, you know, species and constellations so with, named with... after Magellan. And nobody is saying, let's, you know, take those to change those those names. So it's quite amazing that the relatively good guy gets all the brickbats mm. and the relatively bad guy gets all the praise. And, and I think mm. the reason, you know, it's very hard to explain that, but I think it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's an example of how prejudice is inviolable by fact. <laughs> and that, that, that no matter you know, what the truth is of a, an episode in the past, people decide what they think about it on the basis of their prejudices mm. and on the basis of you know, what it does for their own programmes and agendas. And very, it's very unfortunate that you know, Columbus has become the victim of specifically um, American agendas to do with Native American identity and slavery, things that he really had nothing to do with, but which have become associated with him historically in the course of, you know, a long, oh, I don't know, sort of unfolding historiographical story between his day um, and ours. Whereas Magellan didn't make any contribution to the United States, never got anywhere near here, and is therefore pretty much ignored by public opinion in America. Uh, your own university has had an eruption recently of um, uh, Columbusophobia. Oh, God, I mean, please don't remind me. I mean, this is a really distressing thing to me that a university and my own university should behave so irrationally and should make you know, such terrible concessions to ignorance. What is it done? Literally to smother our Columbus murals in the main building of the University of Notre Dame in the 1880s in celebration of the, um, the fact that the university in those days wanted to be a beacon for the, the moral improvement of America. Mm. and to deliver a sort of apostolic America that would be better than, than Europe. Um, they chose Columbus as an image you know, to represent this because he was the man who brought Catholicism to the new world. And I mean, in the late 19th century, century, this wasn't by any means an unusual uh, view of Columbus. No, no, on the was... contrary. I mean, it was the reason they chose Columbus was that he was a universal hero. In those days, everybody in America loved Columbus, although he was primarily, obviously, an Italian-American hero. He was also um, the hero of everybody because the, the founding fathers, the great patriots, had, had adopted him as a sort of honorary patriot. You know, Jefferson had his, his, his bust in Monticello, Joel mm. Barley wrote this sort of epic poem about him in which he's, he's, he's the sort of forerunner of the United States. So everybody loved him, and to such an extent that even communities in the United States that had nothing to do with Columbus tried to appropriate him very often by forging <laughs> documents which associated him with them. So you get a Jewish Columbus, a Portuguese Columbus, a Spanish Columbus, you can get an English, Scottish, Polish <laughs> The guy is really Italian, but they all wanted a piece of him. You you see, so so actually, the age and of course the the Columbian Exhibition in Chicago was coming up, was going to take place in 1892 to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's 
um, transatlantic crossing. So at Notre Dame, it made absolute sense to focus this, this effort to create a sort of series of icons associating America with moral superiority, focus that on, on Columbus. And the result is that actually the image of the Native Americans in those murals is very positive. I mean, they're shown as these you know, tall, magnificently dressed characters who appear with their weapons before the king and queen of Spain and, and, and really you know, treated as superior to the European figures who surround them in the painting. They're shown showing compassion and, and charity and mercy towards Columbus when he's down on his, his luck and the, the Spaniards have turned um, against him and he's in disgrace as he was um, for a period uh, towards the end of his, his life. So the, the image that these paintings convey of the Native Americans is actually a, 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 an image of moral superiority. The paintings aren't historically accurate. They're not meant to be historically accurate. They're meant to reflect the sort of moral message for their own times. But alas, you know, people have looked at them with, I think, prejudiced eyes mm. on the basis of those false accounts of Columbus that you mentioned that became very popular in the the 1990s and that warped Americans' understanding of this episode in history and warped their understanding of what Columbus really did and what he was really like. And people have seen the paintings through that filter and have claimed, in many cases, that they find them offensive, <laughs> which is mad. <laughs> because you know, what, the, what the painter was, was trying to do is the opposite of offending anybody. Mm. And if you look at them and you're offended, it's because you're not understanding them, you're not looking at them um, objectively um, or clearly. Uh, and really, I think you know, anybody who looks at these paintings and is offended by them is actually probably morally responsible for his or her own offence. It's not the fault of the guys who created and commissioned um, the works. But they're and covered they're, up now. They're also very important educationally and yes. historically, you know. Uh, but the, because of people complaining about them, um, the university decided to cover them up. It was, of course, after the George Floyd incident, which clearly Columbus had nothing to do with, but by virtue of unclear thinking, um, the distinction between Columbus and people who really were responsible for the tragedy and, and mistreatment of George Floyd and other black people in America, that kind of somehow got merged into a, uh, an incoherent muddle mm. in people's minds. And the university could partly, I suppose, uh, for fear that the murals would be the object of violence and partly in deference to people who claimed that they were offended by them and decided to cover them up. And that was, in my opinion, a, a, a rather sad decision. But the worst thing about it is that they covered them up in a way that has actually damaged them. The whole thing was done so thoughtlessly mm. and in such a hurry that they've covered them in a way that, A, has caused them serious damage. So a lot of the paint has been scraped away on the paint surface. Mm. And in the second place, I mean, you know, not as bad as damaging them, it's made it impossible really for these paintings to be exposed in their entirety for mm. teaching and research, which was one of the things that the president of the university was very keen should be preserved. So total 
does also, am I allowed to use the phrase cock up on your... You, you can use it as much as you like. OK, well, in that case, probably I should have used it many times already. <laughs> this is a total um, travesty, and, 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 and somehow or other, it seems impossible to put it right, because you know, now, surely, there's an opportunity to put this right and to change. Mm. If we've got to keep them covered, let's change the method by which they're covered for one which doesn't cause any damage mm. and which involves the restoration of the paintings to their former state. Just one example, but one of literally hundreds of examples one could give of uh, the way in which Columbus is uh, treated, let's say, regarded today in America and the West in general. We, we, we seem to have decided that um, after a period of, of great celebration of Columbus, as you mentioned, uh, there was a period um, by the 400th anniversary of his arrival in America, there was a period where everyone wanted a part of him. Now it's as if nobody wants anything to do with him. Uh, well, except Italian-Americans and many of my fellow Hispanics, who mm -hmm. still identify with him. I mean, the reason we have Columbus Day and the reason why we have most of those monuments, all the ones in Notre Dame and most of the statues, uh, except in Puerto Rico, but on the mainland, the, most of the statues were the result of Italian-American mm. sentiment and investment in this purported link between their own ancestors and the mm. um, uh, incorporation of the, the Americas into Western civilization. That's really what, what stimulated the Columbus statues. And the reason we have Columbus Day was again, it was a gesture of amity uh, towards the Italian-American community in this country after an, an episode, I think it was the worst episode actually of lynching ever in terms of the number of people lynched in the United States. <laughs> the victims were not black in that case, they were Italian-Americans. Um, so Columbus Day was really you know, an act of national reconciliation, which was an attempt to bring everybody together around this. Uh, this figure and to show that Italian-Americans and Catholics, because it's also a time of nativism, anti-Catholicism, the know-nothing movement, all that stuff, you know, um, to show that Italians and Catholics were welcome in America. They could be, you know, real patriotic American, all-American guys, even if they weren't white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And it was a really, honestly, it was a really mm. important act of national reconciliation. And what I... I distresses me about people who want to delete Columbus Day, cancel it, if you like, in your, your um, language, and tear down all the statues. Um, it, it's not... I don't mind their being wrong about Columbus. I don't mind their being ill-informed or ignorant. I don't mind them hating him or exaggerating his vices. What really upsets me is that they're creating a hierarchy of offence by saying that, that in order not to offend me, I'm going to tear down your monuments mm. without realising that many of us, especially Italian-Americans and some of my fellow Hispanics, are as emotionally committed to these monuments mm. as other communities in America are to theirs. Yes. And I just wish we had you know, a tolerant America in which we could all accept each other's monuments and contribute to them and pay them such reverence as, as is, is due to them. And if we've got an imbalance, I mean, there are a lot of Columbus statues, <laughs> yeah, I admit that. If there's an imbalance, the way to address it isn't to tear down the existing mm. statues and monuments, but to build others. And, you know, in my own university, Notre Dame, 
the, these murals that we've covered up are the only tribute we have on the campus to the Native American past. There's mm. one other painting of the, the first president of Notre Dame celebrating an, an indigenous wedding. <laughs> but, but nobody sees that painting as it's mm. in one of the residence halls. Apart from that, we've, that, that was the, the Columbus murals were the only celebration commemorative um, uh, monument that we had to the Native American past. I think we should have had some more, mm. you know, and not, not, not covered up the ones we had, but to add mm. it to them with some, you know, other monuments that really do celebrate the Amer Native American mm. contribution and past, which is a very great past and a very wonderful contribution. But no, apparently we can't live in that world. We can't live in a world of mutual respect mm. and tolerance and pluralism. Uh, we have to destroy each other's monuments in order to gratify our own offence. To me, that is not just crazy, it's actually wicked. When you um, think back now, when we look back at this whole age of the explorers, what do you think that our attitude towards them should be today? I don't think we should have an attitude. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mind. <laughs> As I say, people can hate them if they want to. That's, that's, that's entirely up to them, and I don't want to stop anybody hating, as I don't want to stop them hating me, you know. I'm a Catholic, and I regard it as an obligation of Christian charity to let other people hate me. If that's what turns them on, that's great, you know. <laughs> Go on, hate as much as you like, but don't impose your agenda on me. Uh, and, mm. and don't make me cover up my monuments, cancel my past. Um, uh, destroy my own comforting beliefs, faith and myths if they really contribute to me. I'm willing to respect your morals. So I don't think we should have an attitude to these um, guys. Well, if we have an attitude, I'm perfectly content to leave it intact. I think we should, what we really should do is concentrate on knowing the truth about them. That's my vocation as an historian not to pursue an agenda, not to advocate an attitude, but to tell the truth and give people the facts on which they ought to make their decisions. Because God knows, you know, facts are often very ungratifying and they're often you know, very unwelcome, but they're the only basis on which you can make a rational decision. <laughs> At least if you make your decision on the basis of the facts, you know, it might turn out to be a good decision, <laughs> not necessarily. But, you know, it's more likely to be a right decision if it's based on the facts and if it's based on fiction. So my, my, um, uh, my view is let's concentrate on trying to learn the truth and, and, for God's sake, you know, stop letting these prejudices get in the way of our acknowledgement of the facts. Felipe Fernandez Armesto, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.